Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash boy you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Adventures in Journalism Written by Philip Gibbs This story looks at the life of a journalist living in the early 1900s in England. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to listener The Artisan Solutions for mentioning me in your story on Instagram. Thank you also to iTunes listener Hogwarts Life 5.0 for letting me know that you like history as a topic. A fantastic way to say thank you is to leave a five-star review in your podcast app or share the podcast with a friend. These are fantastic ways for me to help others and are the greatest compliments I can receive. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Dubliners by James Joyce The Sisters There was no hope for him this time. It was the third stroke.
Night after night, I had passed the house. It was vacation time and studied the lighted square of window. And night after night, I had found it lighted in the same way, faintly and evenly. If he was dead, I thought, I would see the reflection of candles on the darkened blind for I knew that two candles must be set at the head of a corpse. He had often said to me, I am not long for this world, and I had thought his words idle. Now I knew they were, Every night as I gazed up at the window, I said softly to myself the word paralysis. It had always sounded strangely in my ears, like the word nonom in the Euclid and the word simony in the catechism. But now it sounded to me like the name of some maleficent and sinful being. It filled me with fear, and yet I longed to be nearer to it, and to look upon its deadly co-worker. Old Cotter was sitting at the fire, smoking when I came downstairs to supper, While my aunt was ladling out my stirabout, he said, as if returning to some former remark of his, No, I wouldn't say he was exactly, but there was something queer, there was something uncanny about him. I'll tell you my opinion. He began to puff at his pipe, no doubt arranging his opinion in his mind. Tiresome old fool. When we knew him first, he used to be rather interesting, talking of faints and worms, but I soon grew tired of him and his endless stories about the distillery. I have my own theory about it, he said. I think it was one of those peculiar cases, but it's hard to say. He began to puff again at his pipe without giving us his theory. My uncle saw me staring and said to me, Well, so your old friend is gone. You'll be sorry to hear. Who, said I, Father Flynn, is he dead? Mr. Cotter here has just told us. He was passing by the house. I knew that I was under observation, so I continued eating, as if the news had not interested me. My uncle explained to old Cotter. The youngster and he were great friends. The old chap taught him a great deal, mind you, and they say he had a great wish for him. 
God have mercy on his soul, said my aunt piously. Old Cotter looked at me for a while. I felt that his little beady black eyes were examining me, but I would not satisfy him by looking up from my plate. He returned to his pipe and finally spat rudely into the grate. I wouldn't like children of mine, he said, to have too much to say to a man like that. How do you mean, Mr. Cotter, asked my aunt. What I mean is, said old Cotter, it's bad for children. My idea is, let a young lad run about and play with young lads of his own age and not be. Am I right, Jack? That's my principle too, said my uncle. Let him learn to box his corner. That's what I'm always saying to the Rosicrucian there. Take exercise. Why, when I was a nipper, even morning of my life, I had a cold bath, winter and summer. And that's what stands to me now. Education is all very fine and large. Mr. Cotter might take a pick of that leg mutton, he added to my aunt. No, no, not for me, said old Cotter. My aunt brought the dish from the safe and put it on the table. But why do you think it's not good for children, Mr. Cotter? It's bad for children, said old Cotter because their minds are so impressionable. When children see things like that, you know, it has an effect. I crammed my mouth with styroboat for fear I might give utterance to my anger. Tiresome old red-nosed imbecile. It was late when I fell asleep. Though I was angry with old Cotter for alluding to me as a child, I puzzled my head to extract meaning from his unfinished sentences. In the dark of my room, I imagined I saw again the heavy grey face of the paralytic. I drew the blankets over my head and tried to think of Christmas. But the grey face still followed me. It murmured, and I understood that it desired to confess something. I felt my soul receding into some pleasant and vicious region, and there again I found it waiting for me. It began to confess to me in a murmuring voice, and I wondered why it smiled continually and why the lips were so moist with spittle. But then I remembered that it had died of paralysis and I felt that I too was smiling feebly 
as if to absolve the simoniac of his sin. The next morning, after breakfast, I went down to look at the little house in Great Britain Street. It was an unassuming shop, registered under the vague name of drapery. The drapery consisted mainly of children's booties and umbrellas, and on ordinary days a notice used to hang in the window saying, Umbrellas recovered. No notice was visible now, for the shutters were up. A crepe bouquet was tied to the door knocker with ribbon. Two poor women and a telegram boy were reading the card pinned on the crepe. I also approached and read, July 1st, 1895, The Reverend James Flynn, formerly of St. Catherine's Church, Meath Street, aged 65 years, rest in peace. The reading of the card persuaded me that he was dead and I was disturbed to find myself at check. Had he not been dead, I would have gone into the dark little room behind the shop to find him sitting in his armchair by the fire, nearly smothered in his greatcoat. Perhaps my aunt would have given me a packet of high toast for him, and this present would have roused him from his stupefied doze. It was always I who emptied the packet into his black snuff box, for his hands trembled, trembled too much to allow him to do this without spilling half the snuff about the floor. Even as he raised his large trembling hand to the nose, little clouds of smoke dribbled through his fingers over the front of his coat. It may have been these constant showers of snuff which gave his ancient priestly garments their green faded look for the red handkerchief blackened as it always was with the snuff stains of a week, with which he tried to brush away the fallen grains, which was quite inefficacious. I wished to go in and look at him, but I had not the courage to knock. I walked away slowly along the sunny side of the street, reading all the theatrical advertisements in the shop windows as I went. I found it strange that neither I nor the day seemed in a morning mood, and I felt even annoyed at discovering in myself a sensation of freedom as if I had been freed from something by his death. I wondered at this for, as my uncle had said the night before, he had taught me a great deal. He had studied in the Irish college in Rome, 
and he had taught me to pronounce Latin properly. He had told me stories about the catacombs and about Napoleon, and he had explained to me the meaning of the different ceremonies of the Mass and of the different vestments worn by the priest. Sometimes he had amused himself by putting difficult questions to me, asking me what one should do in certain circumstances, or whether such and such sins were mortal or venial or only imperfections. His questions showed me how complex and mysterious were certain institutions of the church, which I had always regarded as the simplest acts. The duties of the priest toward the Eucharist and towards the secrecy of the confessional always seemed so grave to me that I wondered how anybody had ever found himself in the courage to undertake them, and I was not surprised when he told me that the fathers of the church had written books as thick as the post office directory and as closely printed as the law notices in the paper, elucidating all these intricate questions Often when I thought of this, I could make no answer, or only very foolish a halting, one upon which he used to smile and nod his head twice or thrice. Sometimes he used to put me through the responses of the Mass, which he had made me learn by heart, and as I padded, he used to smile pensively and nod his head now and then, pushing huge pinches of snuff up each nostril alternately. When he smiled, he used to uncover his big discoloured teeth and let his tongue lie upon his lower lip a habit which had made me feel uneasy in the beginning of our acquaintance, before I knew him well. As I walked along in the sun, I remembered old Cotter's words and tried to remember what had happened afterwards in the dream. I remembered that I had noticed long velvet curtains and a swinging lamp of antique fashion. I felt that I had been very far away, in some land where the customs were strange. In Persia, I thought, but I could not remember the end of the dream. In the evening, my aunt took me with her to visit the house of mourning. It was after sunset, but the window panes of the house that looked to the west reflected the tawny gold of a great bank of clouds. Nanny received us in the hall, 
and as it would have been unseemly to have shouted at her, my aunt shook hands with her for all. The old woman pointed upwards interrogatively, and on my aunt's nodding proceeded to toil up the narrow staircase before us, her bowed head being scarcely above the level of the banister rail. At the first landing she stopped and beckoned us forward encouragingly towards the open door of the dead room. My aunt went in and the old woman, seeing that I hesitated to enter, began to beckon me again repeatedly with her hand. I went in on tiptoe. The room through the lace end of the blind was suffused with dusky golden light amid which the candles looked like pale thin flames. He had been coffined. Nanny gave the lead and we three knelt down at the foot of the bed. I pretended to pray, but I could not gather my thoughts because the old woman's mutterings distracted me. I noticed how clumsily her skirt was hooked at the back and how the heels of her cloth boots were trodden down, all to one side. The fancy came to me that the old priest was smiling as he lay there in his coffin. But no, when we rose and went up to the head of the bed, I saw that he was not smiling. There he lay solemn and copious, vested as for the altar, his large hands loosely retaining a chalice. His face was very truculent, grey and massive, with black cavernous nostrils encircled by a scanty white fur. There was a heavy odour in the room, the flowers. We blessed ourselves and came away. In the little room downstairs, we found Eliza seated in the armchair in state. I groped my way towards my usual chair in the corner, while Nanny went to the sideboard and brought out a decanter of sherry and some wine glasses. She set these on the table and invited us to take a little glass of wine. Then, at her sister's bidding, she filled out the sherry into the glasses and passed them to us. She pressed me to take some cream crackers also, but I declined because I thought it would make too much noise eating them. She seemed to be somewhat disappointed at my refusal and went over quietly to the sofa where she sat down behind her sister. No one spoke. We all gazed at the empty fireplace. My aunt waited until Eliza sighed and then said, Ah, well, he's gone to a better world. 
Eliza sighed again and bowed her head in assent. My aunt fingered the stem of her wine glass before sipping a little. Did he go peacefully, she asked. Quite peacefully, ma'am, said Eliza. You couldn't tell when the breath went out of him. He had a beautiful death, God be praised. And everything. Father O'Rourke was in with him a Tuesday and anointed him and prepared him and all. He knew then he was quite resigned. He looks quite resigned, said my aunt. That's what the woman we had in to wash him said. She said he just looked as if he was asleep. He looked that peaceful and resigned. No one would think he'd make such a beautiful corpse. Yes, indeed, said my aunt. She sipped a little more from her glass and said, Well, Miss Flynn, at any rate it must be a great comfort for you to know that you did all you could for him. You were both very kind to him, I must say. Eliza smoothed her dress over her knees. Poor James, she said. God knows we done all we could, as poor as we are. We wouldn't see him want anything while he was in it. Nanny had leaned her head against the sofa pillow and seemed about to fall asleep. There's poor Nanny, said Eliza, looking at her. She's worn out. All the work we had, she and me, getting in the women to wash him and then lay him out, and then the coffin and then arranging about the mass in the chapel. Only for Father Rourke I don't know what we'd have done at all. It was him that brought us all the flowers and them two candlesticks out of the chapel and wrote out the notice for the Freeman's General and took charge of all the papers for the cemetery and poor James's insurance. That was extremely good of him, said my aunt. Eliza closed her eyes and shook her head slowly. There's no friends like the old friends, she said. When all is said and done, no friends that a body can trust. Indeed, that's true, said my aunt. And I'm sure now that he's gone to his eternal reward... He won't forget you all and your kindness to him. Poor James, said Eliza. He was no great trouble to us. You wouldn't hear him in the house any more than now. Still, I know he's gone and to all that. It's when it's all over that you'll miss him, said my aunt. I know that, said Eliza. 
I won't be bringing him his cup of beef tea anymore, nor you, ma'am, sending him his snuff. Poor James. She stopped as if she were communing with the past and then said shrewdly, Mind you, I noticed there was something queer coming over him lately. Whenever I'd bring him in the soup to him, there I'd find him with the bravery fallen to the floor, lying back in the chair and his mouth open. She laid a finger against her nose and frowned, and then continued. But still and all he kept on saying that before the summer was over, he'd go out for a drive one day just to see the old house again, where we were all born down in Irish town, and take me and Nanny with him. If we could only get one of them newfangled carriages that makes no noise that Father O'Rourke told him about. Them with the rheumatic wheels for the day cheap, he said. At Johnny Rush's over the way, there and drive out the three of us together on a Sunday evening. He had his mind set on that, poor James. The Lord have mercy on his soul, said my aunt. Eliza took out her handkerchief and wiped her eyes with it. Then she put it back again in her pocket and gazed into the empty grate for some time without speaking. He was too scrupulous always, she said. The duties of the priesthood was too much for him. And then his life was, you might say, crossed. Yes, said my aunt, he was a disappointed man, you could see that. A silence took possession over the little room and under cover of it. I approached the table and tasted my sherry, and then returned quietly to my chair in the corner. Eliza seemed to have fallen into a deep reverie. We waited respectfully for her to break the silence, and after a long pause she said slowly, It was that chalice he broke. That was the beginning of it. Of course they say it was all right that it contained nothing, I mean... But still, they say it was the boy's fault. But poor James was so nervous. God be merciful to him. And was that it, said my aunt. I heard nothing. Eliza nodded. That affected his mind, she said. After he began to mope by himself talking to no one and wandering about by himself. So one night he was wanted for to go on a call, and they couldn't find him anywhere. They looked high up and low down, 
and still they couldn't see a sight of him anywhere. So then the clerk suggested to try the chapel. So then they got the keys and opened the chapel and the clerk and Father O'Rourke and another priest that was there brought in a light for to look for him. And what do you think but there he was, sitting up by himself in the dark in his confession box, wide awake and laughing like softly to himself. She stopped suddenly as if to listen. I too listened, but there was no sound in the house. I knew that the old priest was still lying in his coffin as we had seen him, solemn and truculent in death, an idle chalice on his breast. Eliza resumed, wide awake and laughing like to himself. So then, of course, when they saw that, that made them think that there was something gone wrong with him. It was Joe Dillon who introduced the Wild West to us. He had a little library made up of old numbers of the Union Jack, Pluck and the Halfpenny Marvel. Every evening after school, we met in his back garden and arranged Indian battles. He and his fat young brother Leo, the idler, held the loft of the stable while we tried to carry it by storm, or we fought a pitched battle on the grass. But however well we fought, we never won siege or battle, and all of our bouts ended with Joe Dillon's war dance of victory. His parents went to eight o'clock mass every morning in Gardiner Street and the peaceful odour of Mrs. Dillon was prevalent in the hall of the house. But he played too fiercely for us who were younger and more timid. He looked like some kind of Indian when he capered round the garden, an old tea cosy on his head beating a tin with his fist and yelling. Everyone was incredulous when it was reported that he had a vocation for the priesthood. Nevertheless, it was true. A spirit of unruliness diffused itself among us and under its influence. Differences of culture and constitution were waived. We banded ourselves together, some boldly, some in jest, and some almost in fear. And of the number of these latter, the reluctant Indians who were afraid to seem studious or lacking in robustness, I was one. The adventures related to the literature of the Wild West were remote from my nature, but at least they opened doors of escape. 
I liked better some American detective stories which were traversed from time to time by unkempt, fierce and beautiful girls. Though there was nothing wrong in these stories and though their intention was sometimes literary, they were circulated secretly at school. One day when Father Butler was hearing the four pages of Roman history, Clumsy Leo Dillon was discovered with a copy of the Halfpenny Marvel. This page or this page. This page now, Dillon. Go on, have you studied it? What have you there in your pocket? Everyone's heart palpitated as Leo Dillon handed up the paper and everyone assumed an innocent face. Father Butler turned over the pages, frowning. What is this rubbish, he said. Is this what you read instead of studying your Roman history? Let me find not one or any of you reading this wretched stuff in college. The man who wrote it, I suppose, was some wretched fellow who writes these things for a drink. I'm surprised at boys like you, educated, reading such stuff. I could understand it if you were. National schoolboys. Now, Dylan, I advise you strongly, it's time to get to work. This rebuke during the sober hours of school paled much of the glory of the Wild West for me, and the confused puffy face of Leo Dillon awakened one of my conscience. But when the restraining influence of the school was at a distance, I began to hunger again for wild, Wild West sensations, for the escape which those chronicles of disorder alone seemed to offer me. The mimic warfare of the evening became at last as wearisome to me as the routine of school in the morning, because I wanted real adventures to happen to myself. But real adventures, I reflected, do not happen to people who remain at home, they must be sought abroad. And that concludes tonight's episode. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy, and if you're not, then please feel free to listen to another episode. I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Until then, good night.